Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Who won the 2016 presidential election? I, I thought it was a pretty much answered question, but it seems like so much else in American politics these days, the answer you'll get depends on who you ask. Uh, now no, what, nothing is over until we say it. Exactly. As, you know, uh, as uh, Otter, I think, said. Otter? Was it Bluto? Bluto. It was Bluto, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that reference. Now, what we <laughs> do know is that more people overall voted for Hillary Clinton, over 2 million more at this point, which is around 2% more of the popular vote than Donald Trump got. Now, until this week, we thought we knew that that didn't matter because Donald Trump had won more electoral votes, uh, 306 to Clinton's 232, which counting Michigan, which just a few days ago declared Trump the winner by just over 10,000 votes. But now, the vote in three critical states that could flip the election, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, is being challenged. Not, as you might expect, by Hillary Clinton's campaign or the Democratic Party, but by Green Party nominee Jill Stein, who this last week has raised over $5 million for the costs associated with recounts in those three states. So, so Jay, what do you make of this? Why is Jill Stein, of all people, doing this, and what do you think is likely to come of it? Well, I think Jill Stein's doing it because this is the most we've ever talked about Jill Stein and the most anyone's ever talked about Jill Stein over the last year, despite the fact that she ran for president. Uh, I, I think it is primarily a, a Green Party sort of publicity stunt. Uh, I, I don't I don't think there's much merit there. The you know, as as most of our listeners probably know, this comes out of there was a report by some computer science people who said, look, um, we don't. We think there there's a possibility there could have been hacking. Uh, now, again, there's absolutely no evidence that there's been any hacking. Well, yeah, they, I mean, uh, they, they were even they were even more kind of circumspect about that. They said, well, there are some things that we don't really think we don't really think there's an issue, but just to make absolutely sure, there it might not be a bad idea if there's a recount. But even even they said that well, they didn't but, really but think it was. But a, you don't say that kind of thing. Of I mean, that's that's sort of the. Uh, you don't say, well, it's, it's, you know, you know, it's like if you go to the doctor and, and they, they see something on your scans or something and well, you know, look, it's uh, probably not cancer. I, I wouldn't worry about it, but you know, most likely not cancer, but uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, you can't just go and say stuff like that. Uh, I mean, obviously these folks before they issued a press release were intending that there would be a recount or they were intending to call the, the, um, um, result into doubt. Uh, they just put enough caveats in there to try to safeguard their professional reputation. I don't, I disagree. I, I see what you're saying, but I don't think it was nearly that political. I just think it was uh, you know, data scientists type people kind of doing the sort of thing they do and saying, hmm, this is interesting. And uh, so, yeah, but then again, yeah, I think you tend to politicize these happen, things more than so what, what, what would you expect would happen, though? As an academic, it, when okay. I when I uh, when I say anything about anything, I expect nothing will happen. And that's generally exactly what does happen. So. So, yeah, I think it's not – I don't think that their motives were nearly as political as you do. But I do think certainly that they were politicized and they were taken out of context and sensationalized by the left 
uh, to kind of, you know, to gin up some controversy where I don't really think there is any. Now, now that said, it should point out that, you know, Donald Trump won those three states by not that many votes. In Wisconsin, a little over 22,000. Michigan, just over 10,000. Now, Pennsylvania, a little bit bigger, bigger state, a little over 70,000. So, I mean, that's not a lot of votes, but still, and this is what the, these folks pointed out is that there would have to be uh, just a, it, it would be enormously unlikely that any recount would give Clinton a victory in any of these states, which is why I think the Clinton, right. you know, the, the Clinton campaign says, yeah, we'll be part of this, but they weren't pushing for this. And, you know, the reason why is because they know it's not going to change the results. Yeah. Well, more, more to the, the, the point, I think if, if the real concern is, oh, there's been hacking, uh, to what extent does does a recount really even solve that problem? Yeah. And that's going to depend on, uh, you know, I guess how you how each state you know records its its votes. Um, you know, those states that have electronic voting to begin with. Um, you know, I think if you recount, you'll get the same results you did before. And if they were hacked, then they're they're hacked now. Um, I, I, yeah, to me, it's. Well, and I think, too, people have this idea of hacking from from movies and, you know, and TV and so forth and just think that some, you know, Russian super genius team can go in and and go online and connect to all these voting machines. That's not how it works. It's it's just not it's it would take an enormously coordinated effort where people would actually have to have access to these voting machines. I mean, it, it is so highly improbable to be not exactly laughable, but just the idea that I'm, I'm laughing. Yeah. Like you're, you're <laughs> laughing. Sure. Right um, now, literally. Yeah. But, and so that, that to me, you know, and this is to me, the, the, the irony, I guess, is that uh, there were so many liberal media outlets who were aghast, who were outraged, maybe fake outraged. I don't know the, at the thought that Donald Trump might not accept the legitimacy of the election. Um, and, and of course, Donald Trump has no problem accepting a legitimacy election now, but it's they who don't have a problem or have a problem accepting it. And I find that, I mean, it's, you know, it's not all of the liberal media, but some pretty prominent outlets who are, you know, kind of egging this on. Uh, I, I don't know. I think mainly they're doing it just because, you know, controversy sells and that's what their readers want to believe is that they were robbed. But the fact of the matter is, is while Hillary Clinton did get a, a lot more votes overall, that's not how our system works. It's like the losing team, you know, in a football game saying, well, we have more total yards than the other team, but that's not exactly, the point, yeah. you know? So see, I, to me, that's not the, the real concern. That's not what I'm concerned about. I am concerned about the fact that there are plenty of media outlets who don't seem to have a problem casting doubt on the legitimacy of our elections for their own, you know, for their own financial gain. But to me, a bigger concern is a lot of, uh, well, a number of independent reports that make it pretty clear that Russia uh, put forth a massive propaganda disinformation effort largely through social media with thousands of these bots and you know big teams of what what are called trolls and and website yeah. networks and so forth to just push out so much fake and, and almost all anti-Clinton information. Now, did that have an effect? It's it, that's one of those things that's really hard to measure. It certainly didn't help Hillary Clinton. But to me the real concern is that I don't know how much of a defense we have against this, uh, this sort of this sort of tampering in our elections. And I think it's a it's a big concern and we don't have any good answers for it right now. And, and I'm 
I mean, I'm not deeply worried because I am kind of deeply worried about that. I don't know. What do you think, Jay? Uh, I mean, I think the best defense is you just sort of look at look at these stories that come out. And if it sounds like crazy propaganda, it probably is. And um, yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, the, the Russians have been putting out sort of crazy propaganda <laughs> into the U.S. in one form or another for for decades and decades now. Uh, and it used to be that liberals would make fun of conservatives uh, for, you know, pointing out, you know, so many of the don't get me started about, you know. Well, I think except now there are a couple differences. Number one, I think the Russians have gotten a lot more sophisticated in the type of propaganda they put out. It's not the kind of crazy Pravda type stuff that we saw in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. It's a lot more sophisticated. Number two, they have a much better dispersal mechanism, which is social media. And plenty of people believe some of these stories, which take something that's true or true enough, like, for instance, Hillary Clinton's questionable ethics on certain things or her falling ill, and just spinning that just enough into something that's untrue, but believable if you're maybe on the fence. And I don't, I mean, I think there's, I don't know that there's any great defense for this. You know, Facebook says they're trying to focus on cracking down on fake news. But this is, to me, one of the fundamental problems when you have an open society and an open media like this with essentially no, not as many real gatekeepers anymore to information is that somebody who wants to do damage can flood the system with fake information that is very compelling. You know, those kind of clickbaity sort of headlines. People love this sort of stuff. And so it plays right into people's I mean, I guess my my sense is a lot of people... I mean, they you click on it, but do you believe it? I I don't. I well, mean, you don't, of I course, don't. I mean, Jay. I, I, guess I don't. The defense, the defense. I would I would recommend to everybody is you be skeptical of of everything you see, whether I, it's you know just a, a silly clickbait type thing coming from someone on social media, or whether it's coming from the New York Times. Um, I, I agree. I, I think you and I that certainly we certainly do that, and I I bet you that our listeners do that. But my concern is with you know the vast majority of Americans who those idiots know, who don't listen <laughs> exactly. You know, oh, we need a few hundred million more listeners, and we would be fine. Um, but but that that's really my concern, and that's not going away. In fact, I think that that problem. I don't know if it's going to get worse, but I think certainly. The Russians aren't going to stop doing that. And other there's no reason why other actors won't do that, like the Chinese and some other governments. And so that's a real concern going forward. And I don't have a good answer for it. Yeah, I I think I think it's sort of being a little overblown. Uh, I think the news media uh, takes any sort of threat to its own turf uh, extremely seriously and tends to, to blow up more than than uh, than maybe is warranted. Um and again, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly which uh, clickbaity stories they're talking about, but I get all kinds of crazy stuff in uh, in my news feed, and I would say I ignore the, the vast majority of it. And you know, I guess I guess that's the defense, uh, and maybe it's just an immunization process that uh, people need to work through um, on social media. I think it's a little different than you know our our parents or grandparents. Uh, uh, generations where look if they said it on tv or it was printed in the paper well it has to be true sure i think i think most younger people uh gen xers and millennials have sort of a more of a built-in skepticism uh for for the media in general and for what they see online in particular 
Well, so. I, I will I will end end this by saying that you seem to have a lot more faith in uh, the public, the the public's common sense and rationality than I do, and I hope you're right. Uh, you know, assuming Donald Trump is sworn in on January 20th, which I'm going to go out the limb and say is a safe assumption. We're starting to get more of a sense of what his team, what his plans will look like. In the last week, the president-elect has released two videos to YouTube, bypassing the media entirely. I watched both of them. Uh, his, they're very short. Uh, his, his video at the, be- at the beginning of the week covered his main priorities that he wants to cover once he's in office. And then on Thanksgiving, he released a video that essentially called for everyone to sort of come together after a brutal and hugely polarizing campaign. And he also met with the New York Times, where he seemed to moderate a number of his campaign positions. And he ended the meeting by saying, it's a great honor. I will say the Times is a great, great American jewel, a world jewel. And I hope we can all get along. We're working for the same thing. And I hope we can all get along well. It's like, Who is this guy? Um, Jay, what did you think about Donald Trump's messages to the American public, his meeting with the New York Times? Uh, uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I think the going going straight to YouTube, uh, I think, is sort of brilliant. I mean, um, he's he's taken advantage of this new medium to get around uh, a media, which is, you know, hostile to him. Um, and, and I think he's doing it well now. And it's a little weird that he does it well on um YouTube, uh, as opposed to the goofy Twitter posts where, you know, he's he's complaining about Hamilton or complaining about um, Saturday Night Live or, or, or those sort of things, which, again, strike me as being very unpresidential. <laughs> but you're just you're using the medium wrong. Um, but but no, I, I think it's great. Um, and again, the media is in a little bit of a freak out. Uh, over, you know, sort of wait, wait, he can't do this. Uh, but, but yes, he did. Um, and, and I mean, I guess I draw the com- a comparison to, and you'll probably freak out and a lot of liberals will freak out. Uh, but FDR, uh, who used the medium of radio and the fireside chats to speak directly to the American public. Uh, and, you know, again, bypassing traditional media and getting to people right in their homes, right where they live and speaking to them directly. Um, it's he's really doing the same sort of thing, uh, albeit even in a much much shorter version. Well, I think that's the smart are. thing is that it's a lot. It, he understands the brief attention span of the public. Uh, from all accounts, he himself has a very brief attention span, and so he keeps these things short and snappy. But you know, there was a lot, at least in the video released uh, that he released uh, not quite a week ago. Uh, you could get a lot from what he wanted to do. You know, he talked about. Uh, putting America first, creating jobs, uh, withdrawing from TPP, the same sort of stuff we heard on the campaign, uh, essentially. One, uh, a couple of new things. One thing he mentioned is he wanted to formulate a rule that says for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. Uh, he mentioned uh, wanting the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff to develop a plan to protect infrastructure against cyber attacks and all other forms of attacks. Uh, and also he talked about that five-year ban on executive branch officials lobbying and also a lifetime ban on lobbying foreign governments. So there were there were a few newish kind of things. But again, we, we pretty clearly see him in all of this being a lot less adversarial than he was during the campaign, though given how adversarial he was, it's hardly 
a surprise because right. he could have and, and also more. and also at this point he doesn't really have an adversary yet. Yeah, exactly. He, I mean, I'm there will sure be Democrats in Congress once once these things are actually put into place in terms of an actual yeah. proposal that's moving forward in Congress. He'll have actual adversaries. But at this, there's the little, little bit of a. I mean, I, I don't know whether you call it a honeymoon period or what, but uh, he gets to speak, and there's not really a a an adversary on the field at this point. Good point. I mean, we, we've seen even, you know, in some of his tweets in reaction to the, uh, uh, to the Jill Stein uh, election challenge. And pretty clearly he's, he's not coming out as strongly as he did for some stuff during the campaign, but you know, that's, that's the old, the old Donald Trump that we've come to expect certainly in some of those tweets. And you can see that, that that's an excellent point. You know, also, I should mention that the, the president-elect also filled out his administration a little bit more this week. He announced his choices for education secretary and ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, his pick for education is Betsy DeVos, a major Republican fundraiser who, unsurprisingly, is a critic of public schools and a big proponent of vouchers and school choice. Uh, Nikki mm-hmm. Haley, his U.N. pick, is currently governor of South Carolina. She was a strong critic of Donald Trump during the campaign. And, uh, you know, he's also asked another former opponent, uh, surgeon and former Republican presidential candidate Ben Carson, to run the Department of Housing and Urban Development, though Carson, at least at the point we're recording this, hasn't indicated that he'll accept the position. So I'm wondering, Jay, well, what do you think about these choices? What, what do you think they say about Donald Trump and what we might expect in the Trump administration? Um, I would say these are pretty much, you know, first, first, the, the, the Betsy DeVos one, uh, she, that's probably the most controversial. Um, but I, I would say it wouldn't, it's not surprising. Uh, I personally had never heard of Betsy DeVos before this, but it's not surprising that he would select someone like her. Uh, you know, and the other name that had been bandied about a lot for education secretary was Michelle Rhee, be. who would, who would uh, again, is a similar uh, big proponent of vouchers, charter schools, uh, alternatives to, to traditional public education. Um, look, as a, as a uh, conservative, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Um, there's, there's sort of a myth on the left that uh, what, Conservatives want to do is just tear apart public education, destroy it altogether, and so forth. Uh, and I, I, I can tell you from from my dealings in this, no, it's it's uh, uh, quite honestly what they want to do is break up the systems that that aren't working. Um, and the best way to do that is is through competition. And that's the particular problem is with uh, a lot of these inner city city districts where people are condemned to you know, you're stuck with a, a really bad school system. Um, and, uh, I think vouchers and charter schools, um, while imperfect, uh, we can have a discussion about charter schools someday, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a choice and, and having a choice, uh, is, is better than having no choice. So, well, well, what about this? I mean, another trend that we're kind there are a couple trends that I see in, in Donald Trump's picks. Um, one, uh, the first one I'll mention, I guess you talked about freaking out some people. I'll freak out some people, too, by saying that, you know, some of the, some have argued that Donald Trump has taken kind of a team of rivals approach that was uh, like the, sort of along the lines of what President Lincoln did. Um, and, and so I love I'm sure people will. There's nothing if not Lincoln. Has, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that well, I, although, although, again, in, in, in fairness, I mean, if you look back, Lincoln was very much criticized for the type of stuff. I mean, albeit different level that the Trump is, but sort of being a vulgar sort of frontier, rough talking, um, you know, not polite society type character. 
Well, yeah, and certainly Trump is that. Uh, and, you know, just for people, just to be clear, what we're talking about, this team arrivals approach, and the idea is that you bring in a number of people who don't necessarily agree, who are going to kind of go at it, and you let them do that, and that creative energy will give you more and better solutions than if you just sort of surround yourself with, with yes people, essentially, and or in, in kind of a presidential bubble. And from, from many accounts, that's sort of how Donald Trump has run many of his businesses, is he likes to create that conflict. Like there's a surprise, yeah, and sort mm-hmm. of, and so he feeds off of that energy, and he gets to be, uh, as as one of our former presidents would call it, the decider. And you know, I, I don't think that. I think there's something to be said for that approach. If you can take it too far and just end up having chaos, but. I would expect that under, uh, for instance, a Hillary Clinton administration, you wouldn't see that at all. It's a very, very big difference. And that's been a problem with a lot of presidents is that they surround themselves with people who only tell them what they want to hear, everyone who has the sort of same worldview, the same ideology, and they get they get locked into that and kind of tunnel in there. And that, that's, a, that's a bad thing. And so, you know, Am, am I grasping at straws here? I don't know, but I'm, I guess I'm saying that certainly well, a little this bit is, of it is also the, the the fact that Trump himself doesn't or hasn't appeared so far to have any real overreaching ideology. Uh, so I think it kind of makes it easier for him to pick sort of well, a, a you know just menu of, of here's this guy, here's this guy, here's this guy, and they don't necessarily agree because it's almost like Trump himself doesn't have right. a, an overriding policy that with which he agrees. And, I mean. And he there, sort of needs these people to sort it out for him. Well, and there's another concern there is that uh, will he just simply listen to the last – kind of agree with the last person he hears from, you know? And so that's one of the problems when I think you don't have a kind of a deep background is that people who can make persuasive arguments, you know, the last persuasive argument you hear might be the one you go with. And that's why I think as a general rule – while I think a sort of a team arrivals approach is good, I think it works best when you have somebody in charge who has kind of a depth of experience, who's really thought about some of these things, who can kind of weigh these things a little more. Again, I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm wrong about that, but it's a it's certainly a, a different type of approach. Uh, a couple other things I've noticed is. Number one or number two, I guess, is that uh, he's picked a number of people who don't necessarily have a lot of experience. Uh, Ben Carson would be a great example. I mean, Ben Carson, as far as I know, hasn't run anything of any size, and which I think it's smart for Ben Carson to hesitate. He was, was, I think, uh, like the head uh, medical director of a a hospital, I believe it. Okay, so that's, but I mean, it's a a far cry from the, you know, from a cabinet level department. And so that's a, that's an enormous administrative task. And do you want to put somebody in that job with no experience? Nikki Haley's another example. She has no real foreign policy experience. She's a governor. And so, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the difficulty you face. If you want people who come in with new ideas and new approaches, oftentimes they're not the people who've had experience at running these organizations. Their learning curve is going to be a lot steeper. And the concern is that they're going to be even more liable to be to being rolled, to being controlled by the career career bureaucrats who essentially run these agencies who've been there forever and are going to be there forever. And so that's a potential, you know, a potential negative of that. I don't know, what do you think, Jay? Um, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to say some some conservative stuff that might put some people off. Um, but as it should, you know, and as it should, uh, you know, in terms of the, the three things we're talking about right now, the Department of Education, uh, Housing and Urban Development and U.N. Ambassador, uh, those are all things which most conservatives would say, does it really matter who's in charge? 
Um, you know, the, the conservative vision uh, for the Department of Education, the true conservative vision, I think, for the Department of Education is is that there is no federal Department of Education. Just let's Ugh. states do it. By. See, I knew I'd get people worked up. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I think, look, if, if, you, if you're expecting Betsy DeVos to do something radical one way or another, um, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think she's going to do much. I don't think the department's going to do much. But it's a change in it signals a change in attitude. Uh, housing and urban develop, development actually, though, is, is one that I think there is a lot of are a lot of things that, that HUD can do that it's not doing and can do better. Um, uh, ben Carson concerns me as he, he seems to be a very, very nice person. Um, but other than that, again, I'm not sure what his qualifications are, uh, uh, what sort of big ideas he, he has coming into that. Now, maybe it's just, again, the change of attitude and he's going to listen uh, two ideas coming from other folks, uh, which otherwise might not have gained an audience. Um, and Nikki Haley, same thing with, with the UN. Uh, there is less of a uh, concern of, of what is she going to do on her own? Because UN ambassador, you you're really tend to have a, a fairly short leash. Uh, and it's more just the, the change in attitude, change in, in marching orders. Um, so I, you know, with, with those those three pricks in particular, um, I, I don't see a huge policy change coming, just because one, I, I think the the conservative idea, and if they follow a conservative idea, uh, is that that you know none of those agencies are going to do a whole whole heck of a lot, um, but it signals that that there is there is a new attitude, and maybe they're more circumspect about what they they do do. You know, one other thing that I've noticed is that, especially in uh, terms of foreign policy uh, picks, that he seems to be leaning a lot toward uh, former generals, especially uh, a number of Marine generals, which, of course, as a Marine, I, I sort Gotta of have like a, that, right? Well, well, here's the thing. I do and I don't. I mean, my sort of visceral reaction is, yes, we need more Marines in, in the foreign policy establishment. But then I think, wait, do we actually need that? I mean, there's this, you know, there's this tradition uh, of – uh, civilian control of the military. And if you have too many people who are military folks who are in charge in these, in these foreign policy positions, is that, is that a, a matter for concern? Some people say, yeah, it could make our foreign policy more, more bellicose than it would otherwise be. On the other hand, there are some folks who say, well, maybe generals are the people who are going to be most reluctant to bring us into these to suggest that we get involved in warfare because they they more than uh, civilians would understand the costs of that. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Jay? Well, you know, first of all, I think there's a lot more to foreign policy than than wars. Um, And that's so, again, that's sort of the, you know, the sexiest part of the whole thing. But um, so to speak, you know, by by and large, what the State Department does on a day to day basis isn't figuring out, you know, who are we going to have a war with and who aren't we going to have a war with. But it's a lot just of, of managing the status quo of, of people moving back and forth, of, of goods and, and services moving back and forth, of, of uh, maintaining uh, relationships. Uh, there is a, an intelligence collecting piece of that where you work hand in hand with the intelligence agencies. Um, you know, so in large part, you know, what you, you need is good management. Um, and, and I think the generals would probably be, be good for that. And to the extent they they bring a a clear eyed real world view, um, I think that's good. I'm I'm not 
I'm not overly concerned that that you know we're going to turn into some sort of you know military uh, uh, you know like like Turkey or Egypt or something like sure. that where um, where you have a military class that sort of runs the government. Um, and and I think it it might be it might be beneficial. I mean, it might be sort of something of a tonic uh, to the you know what we've what we've had so far. And you know, look, it it remains to be seen. I mean, different generals obviously and and uh, different members of the military look at problems differently. So the the idea that every general and this is again something that's you know sort of been foisted upon us by the left, I mean, back from the you know the Doctor Strange Love kind of days, is that you know every general let's they want to start a war. And and I, I think realistically most people would would think that that's that's really not the case um well so, yeah i guess i'd also point out that uh, a lot of people have a have an idea of what a general is uh that is very much you know framed by again movies and tv and popular culture but generals are very much politicians you don't get those stars on your shoulder without being a, a very political animal and understanding a lot of that stuff these are not just sort of crazed warmonger type folks and so they're they're very uh, very different in many cases from how people think of them i think or at least how yeah, a lot and, of and, and, and again i think the one of the the key things that you look at it's not necessarily uh military brilliance um uh, you know tactical like you know okay who takes this ground who takes this and you know that that sort of thing that we we like to think of but there's a whole lot of just day to day of you know how do you how do you get the logistics of this done um how do you get everything from a to b how do you get everybody fed and clothed and you know those those types of things that are are management responsibilities so um yeah you, you can as as someone as someone who served you can tell me how how well you know military management works or doesn't work but I think I think it's it's I think it's variable, but yeah, I think your your larger point is very important. One is generals are uh, in terms of their day to day activities, they're much more politicians and managers as opposed to warriors. Yeah. How for do the we most keep part. enough gas for all the trucks? How do we? You know, it, it's that kind of thing. It's uh, um, less less than uh, drawing up war plans on the map. Yeah, thankfully, we don't have to do a ton of that all the time. You know, before we move on to our next story, I'd like to thank our new supporters this week. Uh, first, we have Scott from, well, actually, I don't know where Scott's from, uh, but Scott's been a, uh, Scott's been a big supporter of the, of the show from very early on, uh, very, he comments a lot on Facebook and he, he gave a very, very generous donation to the, to the show this week. And we really appreciate that, Scott. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, next we have Chris from, I do know where Chris is from, Newport, New Hampshire. And, and Chris writes, uh, I've met many politicians as a resident of New Hampshire. I bet you have, um, I take pride following politics and making an effort to get to know all the national candidates, especially when we meet them up close during our primary. I enjoy your show to follow and follow both points of view. I'm a registered undeclared voter because I don't want anyone to assume I will vote for them. I try to vote considering both left and right sides, and your show is the best source to guide my decisions. I recommend your show when I can and appreciate your efforts. Oh, thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, and now, of course, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Scott and Chris did. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or Patreon donation links that we have up there. And as always, it would be a really big help if you could spread the word, share and retweet our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leave reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Okay. 
On to our next story. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the potential for conflicts of interest and outright corruption in the Trump administration, uh, especially this week. Donald Trump has said that he plans to turn over his business interests to his children, and that would be far from the sort of blind trust that other presidents have traditionally put their financial interest into before they moved into the White House. And there have been some media outlets, particularly on the left, who argued that from day one, the Trump administration will likely be in violation of the Constitution, uh, specifically the Emoluments Clause, which states, no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. So, Jay, is this really a big deal, or or is it just uh, people getting worried over nothing? What do you think? Well, two two things. Um, first, uh, Trump opponents will uh, char- continue to charge him with conflicts of interest, uh, with corruption, no matter what he does. Uh, I, I think that's going to be a theme for the next four years, um, and it it just is what it is. Um, there is there's there are ways that he probably could do this correctly. Uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, about a week ago had a, a good sort of prescription of Donald Trump. Here's what you need to do. Here's here's the way to walk through it. Um, and, and he sort of just kind of blew that off. I mean, I'm trying to think what his actual comments were, but he indicated that he wasn't necessarily going to be following, you know, what the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, prescribed for him to do. Um, and uh, uh, Peggy Noonan, also in the Wall Street Journal, wrote a piece uh, about, you know, is there a matter of Trump just doesn't get this, uh, the difference between being a, a private business person and a, a public servant. Uh, and it, it maybe he just does it because it's the habits of a lifetime. And, you know, one of the examples is, you know, taking pictures with with contractors who he's working with and so forth. It, you know, it's it's one thing to say uh, here he is. Uh, here's a contractor posing with the, uh, you know, real estate mogul Donald Trump. And another thing to say, here's the president of the United States endorsing this person or that person, especially when these some of these contractors are from from our, our foreign nationals from foreign countries. Um and we, know, should, we should point, these- yeah, we should point out that Donald Trump is, you know, very unique in this sense. There are something like uh, uh, over a hundred Trump companies that do business in uh, eighteen other countries, you know, in in all parts of the world, and and so. I think that in some instances, conflicts are inevitable. Corruption isn't. But, uh, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's very problematic that Donald Trump seems to be and his team just seem to be saying, oh, don't worry about it. We'll we'll take care of it and we'll we'll follow the law and it'll be fine. It's not a concern. I mean, I don't think that's the I don't think that's the right response to this at all. No, they're, they're going to need to come out with a bigger plan and a statement and a here's what we're going to do, uh, I think. Before the inauguration, to to, to explain yeah. how 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 they're how they're going to work this, and again, the left will say that's not enough. That's not enough. Uh, but they they need to do that. They need to have a plan, uh, just so that that there is a plan and that that they can say, listen, we've had lawyers, accountants, uh, you know, from both sides, from the private side, from yeah. the public side, um, you know, people who specialize in in uh, ethics, public contract conflict of interest uh, issues. Uh, look at this, and here's what they've recommended, and here's what we're going to go with. See, I, I think um, that would be great, but I, my concern is that one thing that Donald Trump has been particularly untransparent about is his 
business dealings, you know, the whole thing about his, his income tax returns and, you know, it just – in a number of areas, it's pretty clear that he doesn't want anyone knowing anything more than what's absolutely necessary about the Trump organization. And I think there are some understandable reasons for that. I think that he's made a lot of money by – kind of skirting the edges of the law and maybe going over sometimes. And uh, he, you know, he is kind of, in a sense, Clinton-esque about this, is I think his his tendency to be too defensive about this is going to come back and bite him. I don't think that he's going to do what you think he should do and what I think he should do. And I think that's oh, going I'm, to I'm be a huge he's problem. He's necessarily going to take my advice. Uh, he he should. So far. Yeah, well, he should, you know, <laughs> but, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, I think... I, mean, I, I, think, I think other... Other cooler heads will will push him on coming up with some sort mm. of a plan that is going to be an announced. Here's what here's what we're going to do. I, I hope um, you're right, but I, I I think on this I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but but I, but I hope you're right. Now certainly Congress can act too because in, in part of that clause it says that you know it says that Congress can in fact consent. To various, you know, uh, various uh, gifts, emoluments, that sort of thing. Yeah, so, my, my sense is Congress wouldn't want to touch that. Yeah. Well, I think that there are going to be people who are going to want Congress to weigh in to clarify that. But uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to. I don't think that's going to happen. I think you're right. They're going to try to stay as far uh, as far as possible away from that sort of thing. So it's uh, certainly something that the media is going to be following, and I am. Very glad for that because, unfortunately, since Democrats are a minority in both chambers, they won't be able to hold hearings. And uh, but I, I just hope that Donald Trump is held to account and kept as honest as the media and Democrats in Congress can keep him on this issue. Yeah, the way to do it, and again, I don't think this is going to happen, um, but it would be cool if it did. Is you set up a a bipartisan um, commission. To come up with a plan as to how how do you do this, um, and they take you know whatever testimony. Now again, the, the problem is to do it before uh, the inauguration. You're just not going to have the time uh, to do that or the personnel to do that, um, or the political will. Yeah, um, and and you say, look, here is here is a bipartisan proposal. Uh, Democrats have signed off on this. Republicans have signed off on this. Mr. Trump, this is what we recommend uh, that you do, and we will you know, pass whatever legislation needs to be passed. Uh, now, again, I don't think that that will ever happen. Um, well, Democrats have because it's some, too big of a. Yeah. Some Democrats yeah, I mean, have actually it, started, try, have suggested legislation that they want to introduce about that. But it's not it's not going to go anywhere in a Republican House or a Republican Senate for sure. But, yeah, I agree with you. It would be nice to have some so some kind of clarification. So the next time we have a uh, the next time we have a billionaire president with far flung business interests, you know, <laughs> this will be this will well, be covered. And, and it could. I mean, if you consider like a Michael Bloomberg, I mean, sure. that would present the same type of same type of problem, same type of issues. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, Barack Obama is still president of the United States. Uh, hard to believe we don't talk about it much these days. But while President-elect Trump and a Republican Congress may be able to undo much of President Obama's legacy, and President Obama's legacy is something we're definitely going to be talking about in an upcoming uh, Ask the Politics guys, you know, one thing that they can't do is unpardon people. And President Obama has now pardoned more than a thousand federal prisoners, which is more than any other president. And I would argue that even more importantly, under his administration, the Justice Department has been instructing federal prosecutors to not bring charges in mandatory minimum cases that involve low-level nonviolent drug crimes. And as a result, 
Charges in these kind of cases have gone down by around 25%. And I think everyone can agree that it's a whole lot better to never be charged in the first place than to be charged, convicted, and then you know hope for clemency at some point. And right. so that, that's my kind of liberal viewpoint or center-left viewpoint on this. What do you think, Jay? I mean, first off, I guess, is it a good thing that what President Obama and the Justice Department are doing, have been doing for years now, and more importantly, I guess, would you expect a Justice Department headed by Jeff Sessions, a very tough-on-crime kind of guy, to take a different approach to nonviolent, low-level drug crimes? Uh, I'm going to surprise people by saying I actually don't have that big of a problem with what Obama's doing. Um, here's here's what I'm, I'm trying to – again, it's the same thing of, of I think he's doing the right thing, perhaps doing it in the wrong way. Uh, it's probably an abuse of the clemency process. And again, we're talking mostly about commuting of sentences rather than than full pardons. Right. Uh, it's just a matter of saying, OK, look, you've done your time now or or we're we're lessening your sentence or something, um, which is clearly within his power to do. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but we do have a, a problem in our federal system and our state systems too of, of we have a mass incarceration of people uh, and it's extremely expensive and it doesn't seem to be working and I look at this as a uh, you know far right-wing conservative that I am and say you know regardless of, of if you want to be tough on crime uh, you want a policy that works and isn't just a massive government spending program that's not working and, and I think in many cases that's what we've we've achieved with these these uh, sentencing pieces that were put in uh, mostly in the early 90s in response to the the crack ep- epidemic um and and are are dragging in too many people um so you know look I, i've got a little bit of a problem um okay less of a problem with the um, um commuting of sentences because i think that's plenty within the presidential power more of a problem with um telling prosecutors not to bring charges uh, across the board, I mean, again, you have there's prosecutorial discretion where they can make those decisions, but I, I think the president of the Justice Department making blanket orders on we're not going to prosecute these crimes is is overreaching and in violation of what Congress wants you to do. Uh, but I think it's something the new Congress will have to take up, and I think Jeff Sessions might surprise you. Well, I don't know because you know he's very publicly, very clearly come out in favor of. Very strong enforcement of drug laws. He's come out very much opposed to Obama's approach to this. And his belief, in fact, that he said is that it's the kind of strict enforcement that we've had that has actually lowered crime rates. So I I, I don't think he's going to surprise me at all. I think he's going to just reverse course. And I think that's going to be a disaster for the criminal justice system, at least at the federal level. And it's going to cause, you know, unnecessary suffering and financial pain as well for uh, a lot of people. And I, I, I one of the many reasons why I think Jeff Sessions is an awful pick for attorney general. Well, let's let's take a look, though, again, at what Jeff Sessions is going to be authorized to do. And to some extent, if there's going to be changes, uh, they're going to come from Congress. Um, and, and, I, and I think there will be changes coming from Congress. Really? You do? Uh, I do. You I mean do. you think that I you think, think, I think – Go ahead. Sorry. I, I think I think they will take up some sort of a uh, criminal justice uh, review. Now, how how much that that does, whether it translates into uh, changing in in uh, mandatory minimums, uh, there might be the sense of of giving giving some latitude back to judges again that was taken away uh, back in the early 90s. That's been sort of a sore spot for a long time. 
Um, you know, I, I, the, the problem is there's always, you know, you see this in the media all the time. You have uh, a judge who either makes a, a poor decision in sentencing or perhaps makes a sentencing decision that are, is based on, on factors that uh, are not made known to the public uh, just because of the way the story is presented to the media. And legislators immediately rush to say, we got to do something about this. We need to have mandatory minimums. Um, and and the, the problem with mandatory minimums uh, is, is that, uh, and I, I know judges who are real strong conservative hang them high type judges who absolutely hate the idea because they, they bring in people uh, under circumstances who, who really um, the, the law was not mean to address. It's, it's mandatory minimums are very much a, a blunt instrument. Um, and, and, uh, I don't think do a lot for, for actually fixing the problem. Uh, and, and I'm, I mean, we'll, we'll see it, but I'm, I'm less concerned about Jeff Sessions doing something on his own because look, he, at the end of the day, uh, Trump is, is still his, his boss. Uh, and the other piece is he actually, you know, the laws are on the books and he's got to enforce those as, as they are written. So, um, so we'll see, but I think I think he may surprise you. Well, I, I hope so. It seems like the the theme of this episode maybe is that you kind of coming across as I said a cockeyed optimist, and me being a little more pessimistic about that. And once again, I hope you're right, Jay. I don't think I've said I hope you're right more times ever than I have in this episode, but I do, in fact, uh, hope you're right. Um, you know, I noticed that we're, we're running a little long today, so we won't have time to get the listener mail, but we will get to your uh, listener your listener mail next week. Uh, and so that pretty much does it for this week's episode. I, I want to make go one, ahead, Jay. one statement, though, that you, you and I should both react to is okay. uh, Fidel Castro is dead. Yes, he is. Uh, and and uh, uh, and I I'm 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 happy for it. Uh, <laughs> so I know other people might might feel differently, uh, but I think this is one of these. Uh, he's really sort of a monster of a human being. Uh, and if you consider the, the left, the criticisms of Trump that he wants to build a wall to keep people out, consider that that Castro killed people who would try to leave, um, and just get the, the, the difference of no matter how bad you think Trump may be, um, the, you know, he's not trying to kill any one of, of the uh, Hollywood celebrities who are running to Canada. Um, he's not sinking their ships in shark-infested waters. Sure. Um, and and I, I think it's – I think we, we need to have a, a, a reckoning um, with, you know, with the, the Castro um, uh, legacy – uh, and the other, you know, piece of this is that that he he did all this stuff right on our doorstep. Um, so and and I, so I I say Fidel Castro, uh, good riddance. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that Fidel Castro is a was a guy who came into power uh, against uh, you know, working understand with good I think motives of trying to. Uh, fight back against a, a corrupt, awful, repressive regime, uh, much like uh, Robert Mugabe did in, you know, in Zimbabwe. And I think it really shows to me more both than anything. Well, the, well, well, I think they both came in as, as reformers with high ideals, but I think this shows what happens. Much like Lenin or Robespierre well, or, uh, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, there are a lot of examples, but my point, and it's just you're, you're kind of helping prove my point, and I appreciate it, is that this is what happens when there is not a strong opposition that is allowed to, well, be in opposition. When you don't have a tradition of that, when that's not built in, baked into your system, even people with the best of intentions, the best of ideals, end up going bad. And I think that's the genius of the American system, and, and that's why... You know, for all the people on the left who are freaked out that Donald Trump's going to be another, you know, fill in the blanks, uh, Mussolini, uh, you know, I mean, some people talk about Hitler. I think it's ridiculous. But that's why in, in the end, I'm not nearly that worried. I think our system is, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, I think our system is robust enough to, you know, to deal with more or less any kind of candidate that we can throw at it. And so I I. In the end, I'm kind of a cockeyed optimist, maybe myself. I'm not concerned. We're going to be just fine in the long run, is my view. Well, so you no, I think that's that's good. And um, again, I'm I'm optimistic that Fidel Castro is dead. So oh, well, yes, he, we, we're pretty <laughs> sure about Chase that. Thing of, yeah, Francisco Franco is still dead. Uh, Fidel Castro is still dead. I, I might. I might, we might close the show with that or open the show with that for, for a while. So, Well, that'll be interesting. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for us on Ask the Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. And our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. You know, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you might be using. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also really does help out a lot. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.